On September the 14th, 1814, British ships fired heavily upon Fort McHenry in Maryland. And they fired heavily for about 24 hours, seeking to obliterate a fort. An American lawyer was on board one of those British ships. He had gone on board to negotiate the release of an American captive. And that lawyer's name was Francis Scott Key. And as he witnessed the bombarding of Fort McHenry for nearly 24 hours overnight and into the morning, you remember that he was moved when at dawn he saw that despite all that battering, all that beating, the American flag still waved in the sky. And he was so moved personally by the drama of that event and his experience by it. Now listen, he was so moved by it that he used poetry and song to summarize what he had seen. And he put that together in what has become for our nation the Star-Spangled Banner, which vividly captures the images that he saw and the beauty that he wanted to summarize. And isn't it interesting that he gifted us with a poem and a song to help us remember that we would never forget and that as a nation and as a people we would have something tangible to sing that summarized those hours of that night into the morning that summarized it so well that our children and our children's children and their children would never forget that event and the turning point that it played in our nation. Now I tell you that story because it is 4th of July weekend, but also because that is precisely what the hymns of the church have sought to do for us, to take the beautiful truths of the gospel and so that we and our children's children would never forget them, put it to poem and to song that we might hide those truths in our heart and pass them on and live in accordance with them. And so Francis Scott Key models not necessarily a Christian event, but the same human principle that we know to be true in the church. And that is we will remember things better when they're put into song and when imagery and beauty helps us hide truths and historical events in our heart. And so we are on week, I don't know, of a hymn series that will end, I don't know, I don't know when, uh, but this morning, we are going to consider Augustus Toplady's hymn, Rock of Ages. And I'm going to tell you a little bit about him this morning and some of the theological truth that he has put to poem and to song for us that we would never forget what the gospel has offered us, what God himself has given us in his word. Our passage this morning that captures the truth of God's word is 1 Peter chapter 2, verse 24. And if you're looking for, for a sweet gospel nugget to memorize, I suggest this would be a great place to start because of the truth that it captures for us. Listen to 1 Peter chapter 2, verse 24. He himself, that is Christ, 
bore our sins in his body on the cross so that we might die to sins and live for righteousness. For by his wounds, we have been healed. Let's pray that God would bless his word in our lives. Lord, that is our prayer. Would you now bless us that we might hear and believe and see and know what has been done and what is being done in the life of the one who has put their faith in Christ. We ask this and we pray it in Jesus' name. Amen. This morning I have three gospel truths for you found in Toplady's hymn, but really in Scripture itself. And the first truth is this. God himself, God himself is the rock of our salvation. You may have noticed in the scriptures that have led us in worship so far this morning, the theme of a rock continues to come up, both in our song and in our scripture text. And that is because the scriptures repeatedly use the language of a rock the surety of a rock to communicate what God has done for his people in salvation. That we should have the, the confidence that we could have in a rock. Augustus Toplady supposedly models that very story well. If you're not familiar with his story, let me tell you a few things about him and then where he supposedly captures this imagery in his own life. Augustus Toplady was born in England in the year 1740. So think about that historically and where that is. He was born in 1740, and at age 15, he was converted, genuinely converted to faith in Christ. Now, of interest to me is that he was converted as a 15-year-old student when visiting Ireland, and he found himself in a barn listening to a preacher preach the gospel. And he says that it was as if he had never heard the gospel before, that the gospel made sense for him for the very first time. Listen to this quote of his about his conversion. Reflecting on his conversion, he says, Strange that I, who had long sat under the means of grace, the ministry of the church in England, should be brought to faith in an obscure part of Ireland amidst a handful of God's people who met together in a barn and under the ministry of one who could hardly spell his own name. Surely this is the Lord's doing, and it is marvelous. So as you get to know Toplady in the sermon this morning, converted as a 15-year-old who found himself visiting Ireland and sitting in a small group of people, not this many people, a small group of people in a barn. And he says that the man who was preaching to him wasn't educated. He was an illiterate man. Yet he heard the gospel clearly for the very first time. Even though he had grown up in worship, he had grown up in the church, he had grown up in the formality of worship in England, and somehow the gospel just went by him and it never clicked. It never made sense. But God the Holy Spirit used the simplicity of an obscure town in Ireland, far from his home, in a barn of all places with a small group of people and an uneducated man 
and the gospel became near and dear to his heart. So let's stop there and do, do a little application. If you had to retell your story of when your heart was warmed by the truth of the gospel, who are the people, where's the place, what are the things that God used? Do you have a story to tell? Can you summarize how God worked in your life, how the Holy Spirit made these truths real to you for the very first time? If you've not had that moment, much of what I'm going to say and what the sermon says this morning, I hope it will capture your ears. And I pray that it will capture your heart as we consider some profoundly beautiful truths. What went on in Augustus's life from there, he became a minister of the gospel. He was born in 1740. In the 1760s, he was ordained to the ministry. And on one occasion, he was traveling by horseback. And he was between villages as he traveled. And apparently a huge storm arose. Now, just like you and I can be traveling down the interstate in between cities and towns, and a huge storm can arise, you've had those occasions where the rain was so heavy and so hard, maybe you pulled over under an overpass to get cover from the storm. Or surely you've seen, as I have, motorcycle riders who, to get out of the wind, to get out of the rain, will pull over under the overpass and get the protection of the road above them. Well, that's literally what's happening for Augustus Toplady on this occasion. He's on his horse. He's between villages. A huge storm arises, and he's looking for cover. And somehow, in God's providence, right there before him, is a huge mount, a rock, with a crevice in it, with a crack in it. And he gets off of his horse, and he slides into the crack where he has in front of him huge rock and immediately behind him huge rock. And he is safe from the storm. And he realizes, as a minister of the gospel, we're always looking for sermon illustrations, right? He realizes, I am in the midst of the illustration of all illustrations. I am between two confident slabs of stone, two enormous rocks, and I am safe in the cleft. I am safe between two immovable objects. And supposedly, that is the birth. That's where he began the lyrics of this hymn, Rock of Ages. Gospel truth number one is that the Lord himself is the rock of our salvation. And Augustus Toplady would pen these words after being in the cleft, in the crevice of that rock. He says, rock of ages, cleft for me. Let me hide myself in thee. Let the water and the blood from thy wounded side which flowed be of sin the double cure. Cleanse me from its guilt and its power. Now, you may have sung this hymn a hundred times, and you may have mouthed those words a hundred times, and never really thought about what is the double cure for sin? What's the two cure, the double cure? And that's our second gospel truth for our sermon this morning. Gospel truth number two. 
The Lord provides the double cure for our sin. Listen, we are living in a time right now where the language of a cure, the language of a vaccine is fresh and meaningful to us. Every news in the week, we read about the hasty work for a vaccine, something to address COVID-19. And there will be great celebration whenever that vaccine or that cure, if you want to call it that, I know that's not technically what it is, but when that cure is found, there will be much celebration, not just for a community, not just for a state, not just for a nation, but for the world. Forty years ago this year, the uh, termination, the, the extermination of smallpox was celebrated. And some of you remember that in 1980, when finally, after hundreds of years, smallpox was eradicated. And there was much celebration in 1980. And there will be celebration when COVID-19 and God's providence is one day non-threatening to human beings. We celebrate cures. And that's what Augustus Toplady is doing in song. He is celebrating the double cure for sin. So what is that double cure? 1 Peter chapter 2, verse 24, I extracted that one small brief passage. Because in it, in those few words, it captures the double cure. Listen again to what he has to say. He himself bore our sins in his body on the cross so that we might die to sins and live for righteousness. For by his wounds you have been healed. The double cure is this. Number one, Christ bore our sins in his body on the cross. He paid the penalty, which scripture reveals as the doctrine of justification. The first cure is the doctrine of justification, that God has dealt with the penalty of our sin and put it on Christ, who bore in his body on the cross the penalty of our sin. Westminster Larger Catechism Question and answer number 70 says this. What is justification? Justification is an act of God's free grace to sinners in which he pardons all their sins, not some of their sins, all their sins, and accepts and accounts their whole persons as righteous in his sight not for anything worked in them or done by them, but only because of the perfect obedience and the full satisfaction of Christ imputed to them by God and received by faith alone. That's the first cure of the double cure. God in Christ has done something about the guilt of our sin. Not your sin, our sin. God has done something about it. And some of us are walking around, some of us who profess faith in Christ, we get out of bed in the morning with a sense of guilt and shame, with a lack of peace and a lack of confidence. And that's because you have not embraced that first part of the double cure as you should. It is to give you confident peace in the midst of chaos in this world. That's the first part of the double cure 
and he's done it for you to be received by faith. And it's beautiful. Secondly, the second part of the double cure is this, that we might die to sin and live for righteousness. There is power given in the gospel for you to change, for you to live a new life with a new heart as a new creature in Christ. That's part two of the double cure. Part one, the penalty has been paid. Part two, there's a power that's been given. And there's a person that's been given for that power. And Scripture reveals him to be the Holy Spirit. So those who are justified are also sanctified. Sanctification, larger catechism, question number 75 in its answer, says this. What is sanctification? Sanctification is a work of God's grace by which those whom God has chosen to be holy before the foundation of the world are in time, through the powerful operation of His Spirit, applying the death and resurrection of Christ to them. And they are renewed in their whole person after the image of God. The seeds of repentance that lead to life and all the other saving graces are put into their hearts. And those graces are stirred up. They're increased. They're strengthened so that they may more and more die to their sin and rise in newness of life. Do you hear the beauty of that promise? God has not left you alone in your sin to fight with it each day in your own power and in your own might. And he's certainly not left you in your own sin to not fight against it. Rather, he has sent in himself the Holy Spirit to put these seeds of repentance, it says, that over the course of time, those seeds will will flourish and will grow with newness of life that you and I actually begin to die to our sin. Our appetites change. We don't hunger and thirst for sin as we did outside of Christ. But now, somehow, strangely, gathering with God's people becomes desirable. Hearing His Word becomes desirable. Singing His praise becomes desirable. Obeying His commands becomes desirable. If in Christ... So if in Christ there are these two beautiful promises, this this double cure for your sin, that he justifies and he sanctifies. And those two truths are inseparable. You don't get one without the other. They always come together and remain together. And that is the third gospel truth that we're reminded of in Toplady's hymn and, of course, in Scripture. Gospel truth number three. Justification and sanctification, these two cures, these two promises, they are inseparable. Where there is justification, there is sanctification. They are two sides of the same coin of salvation. You can't separate a coin into two pieces. It has two sides, but it is one coin. 
And so it is with the double cure of sin. Justification is yours, as is sanctification, and you can't pretend to have the one without the other. Sinclair Ferguson says this on the inseparability of these two things. He says, most of us begin the Christian life knowing that when we trust in Jesus, our sins are forgiven. Amen. That is true. But there is much more that Jesus promises to do for us. When we come to Christ and trust Him in faith, we not only receive pardon for the sin, but power to liberate us and to transform us from sin in our daily lives. The New Testament stresses that justification and sanctification are both ours through faith in Jesus Christ. Amen. They go together. Elsewhere, Sinclair Ferguson says this, It's not possible to be justified without also being sanctified, which means growing in holiness. This is why the author of Hebrews says, Sanctification is essential since without it, None of us will ever see the Lord. In order to experience final salvation, sanctification is as necessary as justification. And why is this, Ferguson asks? Simply because there is no justification without sanctification. Both are given in Christ. Our new status is always accompanied by our new condition. Now, why do I harp on this so heavily? Well, I believe that Scripture does. But I don't believe that our modern church does. Our modern church in the world and in our culture, it can fall off one side of the horse or the other. Sometimes it overemphasizes justification at the cost of sanctification. And sometimes it emphasizes sanctification at the cost of justification. And we would call that error a half-gospel truth. A half-truth. Because it is both truths together. It is the double cure together that is the good news that God has given us. And a half-truth is not worth singing about. We sing about the whole truth of God's word and what he has done. And Toplady captures that so beautifully and so wonderfully in his word. Listen, a ministry that harps only on justification, that only wants you to pray a prayer so that you're saved and never talk about newness of life and change and repentance, that error, that half-truth produces a people who see no need for change, no need to repent, and they themselves are never changed from an unrighteous life. They think they have license to continue in sin without change. And that brings no honor or glory to Christ who promises to change the ones that he justifies. And the ministry that just emphasizes sanctification, obedience, law, perfection, morals, but doesn't give people the confidence of their forgiveness of their sins. These people may be overachievers and moralistic, 
but they have no peace. They're frantic in their performance with no joy because they haven't grasped the double cure for sin, that justification and sanctification always go together. And so it should be in our lives and in the ministry of this church that we want to be a people who are loud and clear about that double cure, about the whole gospel of justification and sanctification. Penalty for sin has been provided. Power to defeat sin has been provided. And now we live that struggle, that difficult life, but somehow is filled with calm and peace and joy in the midst of the storms that we might live. Because we have found our peace in the cleft of that rock, in between two unmovable stones, two immovable rocks of justification and sanctification. That in Christ, that gospel provides all the surety, all the confidence, all the security that we would ever need. And that's my hope and my prayer as we have dealt with this hymn this week in my life and as we prepare to sing it now. That you and I would really be characterized by that double cure. Quick to embrace justification, quick to embrace sanctification. That when we go to bed at night and put our heads on the pillow, there's a calm peace in our life because we believe that guilt has been dealt with. And when we get up in the morning and we put our feet on the floor... And as we face a day filled with unknown challenges, there's a peace in our life. Because we know God the Holy Spirit has put those seeds in our heart that will somehow bear fruit as we seek to obey and experience change. Newness of life lived out for the glory of God. This morning, if you're feeling guilty, perhaps you've not understood justification. This morning, if you're feeling defeated by sin, perhaps you've not experienced sanctification. And to you, God offers himself. He who bore our sins in his body on the tree that you might die to sin and live for righteousness. Because by his wounds, you have been healed. Toplady puts it in poem and song that we would never forget it, that our children would grow up hearing it, and that they would never forget it. Let's pray that this would be true for all of us. Let's pray. Our Father and our God, we rejoice over the good news of a double cure for our sin. Lord, would you help us each to embrace this by faith, to trust in that forgiveness of sin, and to trust in the being freed from the power of sin. Lord, do this in us. Whether young or old, give us that calm confidence that you said your church is to have in this life. And Lord, as we sing this hymn, help us to hide these words in our heart that we might not sin against you. And we pray it together in Jesus' name.